0: Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Plimming, Warden of Cranmer Hall. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. What do the stories and laws of the Old Testament teach us about a God of justice? How does the incarnation of Jesus shape the way we see issues of justice and mercy today? How does the cross hold mercy and justice together? How can facing up to our own broken humanity help us imagine a world beyond judgment? And what do we do when we're confronted with injustice in the world around us? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to the Reverend Dr. Isabel Hamley. Isabel is currently the Secretary for Ecumenism and Theology of the Church of England's Council of Christian Unity and Theological Advisor for the House of Bishops. Her recently published book, Embracing Justice, was selected as the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book for 2022. And our title today is, How Does the Bible Help Us Embrace Justice Beyond Judgment? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Isabel Hamley, welcome to Talking Theology. Good afternoon. Isabel, you've had a wonderfully varied ministerial career as both an academic and as a minister. Tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the key markers on your journey to your present role, which is a very grand-sounding Secretary for Ecumenism and Theology at Lambeth Palace and Theological Advisor to the House of Bishops?
1: It's a very grand title. I don't like it very much. But um, I've had a, a very varied career, which either you can interpret as wonderful experience that serves everything I do, or I can't decide what I'm called to be doing. But I grew up in, in France, where, of course, there was under The Church of England. And I came to faith in the little church through the testimony of my best friend. And I felt a really strong sense of calling into ministry very early on. But my church did not have women as pastors. So I didn't know what to do with it until I I moved to England. Um, I'd studied English at university and did a, a year doing my master's in England. And I felt a really strong call again very early on to explore ministry. Um, But the question was ministry in what church? You know, I'd only just met the Church of England and I wasn't too sure about it. Being French, you know, there were things like having to swear allegiance to the Queen that I find quite uncomfortable. And so initially I trained um, as a Baptist minister and got a job in a in an ecumenical partnership and doing education and working together to enable Christians from lots of different church backgrounds and particularly ethnic groups, coming together to explore theology, to talk about faith and gain insight from each other. And that's been really, really foundational, I think, to everything I've done later and to writing about justice, um, because I was working with very disadvantaged communities amongst others, but I was also writing with questions of whose voices do we hear when we do theology. Uh, who do we listen to, what shapes are belonging. And I was also learning, you know, to worship in lots of different ways. My faith was just being stretched and expanded and my imagination was blown away. You know, where one week we were worshipping with very high church, you know, Church of England, and the next we went to the local Black Pentecostal church. And um, it was wonderful. And I got more and more involved with that that charity and worked with them. But at the same time, I was feeling a strong sense of calling to to probably ordain ministry. I'd kind of met the Church of England and, and it was starting to kind of bear on me a little bit at that point. I didn't want to spend my entire life just doing ministry jobs. I felt like I had to work out whether my theology could cash out in practice. And so I decided to train and be a probation officer at the same time as carrying on teaching um, theology in the evening. And so I did that for several years uh, and actually spent my days as a probation officer and some of my evenings and weekends teaching theology and trying to work out for myself. How do we put these two things together? What does it mean to inhabit the world, um, to to deal with real people and questions of justice and faith and ethics um, when they come to you via stories and people rather than as concepts in your head? Eventually, I gave in to God and agreed to be ordained. (laughs) Um, And I've had various jobs. I've been, uh, been a university chaplain at the University of Leicester, and I've been a vicar in a local church in Nottingham, and I've taught theology, and I've been chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury, which was somewhat of a surprise to me. And I now find myself in the job I'm in now.
0: You wrote a commentary on the book of Judges called The God of Justice and Mercy. And I know that drew on years of research that you'd done. As we begin to think today about the theme of justice, why do you think that book in particular is so crucial?
1: Well, why I wrote on judges um, is linked to a very specific kind of incident when I was in my mid 20s. I went to visit some friends in America and went along to their church and I heard the worst sermon I have ever heard preached. It was an all-age service, so lots of kids and the preacher had picked the text and he'd picked Judges 19, the rape and dismemberment of the Levite's concubine. And his sermon was basically this woman, she disrespected her husband, therefore she got what she deserved. And then he followed that with, and if any of you disrespect your leaders, that's what God will do to you. And I sat there going... OK, what do I do with this? Not, do I, not just what do I do with the sermon, but actually, I've never heard that text preached on in a church. Why not? And actually, if this is part of Scripture, it's part of the whole counsel of God, and therefore, I have to take it seriously. So what do I do with it? And that started a journey for me, kind of thinking about particularly sexual violence, but also question of justice. And how do we talk about this in church? You know, on a Sunday, how do we do more than just talk about the nice bits of the Bible and the nice fluffy stories, and you know, which often aren't fluffy if you scratch beyond the surface? But we make them slightly fluffy. So how do we do church in a way that engages with this? And how do we look at the Old Testament in a way that doesn't say, "Oh, well, that was long ago. You know, those people weren't as good as ours." But how do we let it speak into our reality, into the things that we do and say today? And judges, kind of the more I've read judges, the more I felt it was about that articulation of justice and mercy. How the people come into the land and one of the biggest challenges for the people of God is they've been brought out of Egypt, brought out of an incredibly oppressive system. And the question is, can you do better? (laughs) Can your imagination be changed so that you don't just kind of reverse the poles of oppression so that those who are at the bottom get at the top, but basically you behave in exactly the same way? Is it possible to have a transformed imagination? The Book of Judges says, well, not really, or it's really hard work, but it's fascinating in what happens, in the interplay of um, the systems we put in place, and then all oh, human frailties." Judges fascinates me because it's a book that is so psychologically perceptive. You know, we see leaders who fail, but we see them in context. We understand their life. We see, for instance, Jephthah, who ends up sacrificing his daughter. But we see the beginning of Jephthah as a rejected child. He then spends his entire life trying to make up for it and never trusting anybody. And I look at this and I think, as a probation officer, this is what I worked with. I worked with people who'd done terrible things, but at the same time, they were real people. And if you stop and if you listen to their story, it becomes much more difficult to work out what do I do with this? And that's where, that's where mercy comes in, because actually, justice and mercy have to go together. If you really want to do justice, you can't ignore the backstory. You have to take everything together and somehow try and do justice to the whole story. Uh, and that's you know, how judges really has shaped some of my understanding, together with that sense of God constantly being merciful on his people. So God encouraging the people to do justice, encouraging the people to see that faith isn't just about the things you say or what you worship, but actually it's about the whole of life, the whole of how you organise yourself as a community. And yet the people fail again and again. But it doesn't matter how many times they fail and how much they fail to repent as well. The minute they cry out, they don't even cry out to God, they just cry out, they groan. God responds with compassion. And that asks us a really difficult question about mercy, doesn't it? Because actually compassion and mercy are sometimes seen as opposites. In Judges, they're not. God is just and yet God acts with mercy again and again. And what does that look like for us today, I think is the question.
0: You paint a picture of Judges as this very rich book of the Old Testament in which we are presented with the psychological realities of people, of flawed people, trying to reimagine justice and getting it wrong, but also people who therefore need to receive mercy in a God who is full of mercy. and. You've written this book, Embracing Justice, which was selected by the Archbishop of Canterbury as his Lent book for 2022. In that book, you don't just focus on judges, you look at justice across the scriptures and and into theology. Just give us a sense, first of all, of what you're trying to do in writing that book.
1: So when the Archbishop asked me to write the book, I thought, oh, writing a Lent book on justice, how can I do that? There is so much thinking. And so I did what I always do when um, given a challenge, is I read. I go to my books, and then I read lots of books on justice, and then I got really confused because you, read, you can read lots of theology and lots of philosophy on justice. And a lot of it starts with great ideas, with concepts, with you know, an overall understanding of justice, and people disagree. Of course, they disagree. And I came to a point of thinking, actually, I need to do two things. One is I need to go back to scripture because that's where I'm comfortable. So that's a bit of a cop-out, but that's still, that's where I belong. And the other was that sense of actually, what is my experience of justice and injustice? And thinking, actually, when we talk about justice, we often do it in response to injustice. And isn't it interesting that we talk about injustice, we tend to talk about specific people and situations. But when you move to talking about justice, often we talk in concepts. I just think, isn't that fascinating? And I started thinking about justice as this embodied concept and how scripture actually talks about justice in the context of stories. And because it's in the context of stories, actually it's quite difficult to kind of talk about justice in scripture in a very systematic way. What we have is different stories of justice. And in those different stories... Actually, we have different ways of doing justice, which are appropriate at different times. And I guess what I'm trying to do in the book is to encourage people to discern justice, rather than try and apply a one-size-fits-all concept of justice to all situations. Because that's what I see in Scripture. What we see is people struggling with God to find out how do we inhabit and embody justice. And how do we learn more and more about justice? And and there's a provisionality, I think, to doing story that says, actually, we can try and do justice and we will learn, but we'll make mistakes along the way. And as as situations change and as things change in the world, we will learn that some of the ways in which we've tried to do justice may not have been entirely right. And, And we learn more about justice. It's constantly expanding, but mostly it's relational. It's about seeing the people in front of us and it's about carrying on that conversation with God about how do I do justice here? What does this look like in this story? But then, of course, there are some more general principles that that kind of explore their trends rather than systems.
0: You describe the Bible as containing stories of justice and different stories that invite us to discern justice in different ways and in different places. Let's pick up on some of those stories if we can. And let's look, first of all, at the Old Testament as a whole, and in particular, those parts of the Old Testament that deal with law and the giving of the law and the enacting of the law. What do you think they have to contribute as part of the stories of justice to a world living with injustice today?
1: So the laws of the Old Testament often get a really bad press, don't they? I mean, I don't think I've ever met many people who love reading Leviticus. I'm reading Leviticus at the moment uh, with a wonderful commentary and getting really excited about it, but that probably makes me very strange. But part of the problem is that often we read it outside of the story. So we read those laws and we think that they're just disembodied commandments rather than looking at how they link with the story of Israel. There are so many commands in Leviticus that are linked to remember that you once were slaves, remember what happened, remember who God is, and therefore, you know, care for the widow and the orphan and the poor and the stranger and the alien. You know, so there is a constant interplay of story and law. But the other thing I like about about the law in Leviticus is the way in which it is aimed at shaping an entire community. So the law is just there as a remedial thing. You know, it's not there to say, well, when things go wrong, do eggs. But it's there to say, actually, there is a shape of living within which communities can flourish. There are parts of Leviticus that I find difficult, you know, just like everybody else. And I think, you know, how many ways are there to kill a sheep? But there are other parts of Leviticus, like, like the Jubilee Laws, that just set out an absolutely mind-boggling picture of a community within which people are treated equally, within which people have equal access to resources, within which nobody can accumulate riches and pass them on so that you accumulate privilege and resources over generations and then hoard resources away from the people. Of course, it's never been put into practice. But the vision is incredible and really challenging.
0: I've sometimes heard it expressed, Isabel, and I think I heard echoes it in your book, that the law is therefore not just about, as you say, what you do when you do wrong. It's also a vision. It's kind of aspirational. So much of the way we think of law today is if you drive a car without wearing a seatbelt, this is what will happen to you. But but actually, the vision of the law in the Old Testament is this is what humanity is called to be, of which the Jubilee is an example. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yes, I think it is. And together with that, there's also, you know, all the usual Kind of caveats around culture that our laws reflect our culture. And actually, the laws of Leviticus are the laws for the people back then. You know, one of my favorite is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which people often think, well, that's barbaric. And you think, well, it depends how you think about it. You think about it as this is introducing the idea of proportionality in justice actually, that's pretty good. That's about saying you can't have feuds, you can't have unbridled revenge. Actually, as we would say today, the punishment must fit, must fit the crime. Um, and there is that sense of Leviticus telling a community of people, actually, you can't just do whatever you want. Actually, revenge is not, is not what you need to seek. What you need to seek is a way of living together within which everybody would be able to flourish. And I find that exciting.
0: One of the other stories of justice that you identify in Scripture is the story of God visiting the world, uh, becoming flesh in the world in the incarnation in Jesus Christ. How should that story, do you think, shape our ideals and our practices, our embodying of justice?
1: I mean, first, I think the, the easiest answer is that I don't think we can pursue justice outside, as Christians, outside of our relationship with Jesus so, so there is that sense of relationality, of conversation, of exploration, of discernment that for me is absolutely crucial. But then when we think about the story of Jesus, there is that constant attention to relationship, to seeing the whole person rather than part of the person. I, I find that astonishing in the stories of miracles. I mean, I tell the story, which is my, my absolute favourite story in all the Gospels of the woman uh, with a loss of blood and Jairus, his daughter, and you see Jesus dealing with both of them in completely different ways, according to what they need, given their different social status and Jesus doesn't belittle one or the other or but simply sees them, sees their need, validates them, and gives them more than what they'd asked for and To me, there is something that speaks deeply about justice in there, which is about seeing person. I mean, the word to see is fascinating in its use in Scripture. You know, it's really the Old Testament, God sees, and then God responds. Uh, And Jesus sees and Jesus responds. You find that again and again in the Gospels, in John in particular, uh, which is fascinating. So there's something about the life of Jesus, encouraging us to learn to see the world around us. But then of course, you, you will come inevitably to the cross at some point, And that sense that actually Jesus exhibited inclusion and life and forgiveness in many ways and mercy, but the cross is irreducible. And I think when we look for justice, often we want to bypass the cross. We want to either do judgment without mercy or mercy without judgment. And I think the cross holds both together. And that's where the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus are so deeply challenging. You can't really get to a better world, to a better place, a better community, a fairer world, unless you go through the cross. But it also tells us, you know, the story of the thief on the cross, of Jesus extending mercy, of Jesus offering forgiveness in a way that particularly our current culture is particularly reticent to do. I think we want forgiveness for ourselves and judgment for the other person. On the cross does both and challenges us to have both, both for ourselves and for others.
0: I found that bit of the book really fascinating when you you brought alive that encounter that Jesus had with the two criminals on the cross. You've mentioned the one to whom he showed mercy, who invited, if you like, that relationality with Jesus. Just remind us what you thought of the encounter with the other criminal. What's he looking for in relation to justice?
1: I think the two criminals are really fascinating because one of them is asking for mercy. The other one basically doesn't see any way forward. There is the judgment of the world and there is no way out. Something about the imagination, isn't there? Can we imagine a world where there is more to justice than judgment and being dismissed? I find... Judgment on its own is very sterile. You know, when I was a probation officer, again, I, you know, I worked with lots of different people. And I did in particular, towards my, the end of my time there, I did lots of court reports for people who'd committed sexual offences. And um, there were people whom society wanted to erase, to write off, to write out of our history. They wanted to judge and then be done. But actually, all those people one day would come out of prison. Because prison is expensive and we don't keep people in prison forever. And really, the question is how do we live beyond judgment? What does that look like? How do we still see those people as part of the human race? So, I think often when we see a terrible crime, whether it's you know, people who've hurt children or whether it's the radical evil of the 20th and 21st century. Our instant reaction is to dehumanize that person. Do you think, well, they're not like me. They're not human, really. I would never do that. I can't understand them at all. And that's a way of authoring them or making them less than human, because that's easier. It's much easier to do that than to say, actually, they are human beings. Some of what they have gone through have brought them to where they are. We can't get to a better world unless we're able to deal with what it means to be human, including in the worst parts of being human. And if we don't do that humanely, I fear that we lose our ability to do justice properly.
0: You mentioned earlier that we can't get to justice other than through going through the cross. And I'm just struck as you talk there, Isabel, about the reality as we want forgiveness ourselves and judgment for other people. Is one of the things about what it means to go through the cross is to recognise that it is my sin and your sin that is part of the broken world in which we live, rather than nasty people over there and good people such as me? I mean, is that one of the things about what it means to go through the cross?
1: Yeah, totally. It's not that all of us have done equally bad things. I don't think every, you know, I don't think every sin or any every criminal act is morally equivalent but all of us in many ways contribute to the brokenness of the world. Um, And the brokenness of the world then shapes people who grow up to do terrible things. And all of us have to kind of come to terms with the fact that we're part of this world that is broken and we contribute to it. But for me, the cross is also about grace and that sense of God as the most powerful being that there can possibly be, choosing to take upon himself the responsibility to make things better. So God isn't asking the victims or, you know, or anybody else to make things better. God uses power to transform the world in a way that doesn't use power in the way in which we often think about using power. I guess that's another aspect of justice. As human beings, we often think of justice as a lie to force. You know, we do justice by doing violence to somebody else. We might want to justify it, but actually putting somebody in prison is a form of psychological violence towards them. So we do justice by imposing something on the other person. And I find the cross endlessly challenging because of that refusal to step into coercive models of justice and instead having a relational model of justice that invites everybody to be transformed and work together for transformation.
0: Despite our modern narrative of progress, our society here in the UK and globally, as you've mentioned, is still fractured by injustice, by inequality, by violence. We're recording this podcast, Isabel, at a time of the war in Ukraine, and atrocities are being revealed daily of injustice on a staggering scale. What biblical texts and theological insights do you think the church should be sitting with and working through, particularly as we pray for wisdom and courage to seek justice in, in this really awful situation?
1: For me, I think the first place we go to biblically is Lament and the Psalms of Lament. I am very wary of jumping too quickly to solutions, actually. And I think Lament prevents us from doing that. Lament tells us actually sit with the reality of what is going on here, sit with the human cost, sit with the questions, and actually sit with rather than act for. So in lament, you identify with those who have been wronged and join in with their prayer for deliverance. But I think if we skip that stage, we very quickly go into saviour mode. And actually, the world doesn't need a saviour, it already has one. (laughs) I think what we need is to work with the saviour of the world to make a difference. But lament teaches us a degree of patience. And lament also teaches us to pray for justice. But to put that prayer before God, I mean, I find lament fascinating. Psalm 137, again, is a text nobody likes because it's terrible. It finishes with saying, dash their babies' heads against the stone. You know, who wants to pray that? But actually... That, that is how people feel in those desperate situations. But in lament, that is a feeling that's acknowledged, that is an impulse that is acknowledged, but then that is placed before God. And because it's placed before God, it's an act of trust and an act of surrendering to a degree of our human emotions to God's wisdom and being able to say, this is what I feel, this is what I want to do, But if we see prayer as more than a one-way street, then that leaves open the question of, okay, well, what does God say in response? Where does God take us from there?
0: You've helped us see the way in which you've navigated the connections between theology on the one hand and the lived working out of justice in the other, particularly in your work as a probation officer and your reflection on it, which comes out so powerfully in the book. What has writing the book, speaking about the book, entering into this theme of justice for yourself. What impact has that had for you, if I can ask, on your own life of prayer, your own life of worship and your own discipleship?
1: I find it endlessly challenging, I think I've said earlier. You know, this sense of this profound awareness of how much I am part of the problem as much as have the potential of being part of the solution, you know. And I think I say that somewhere in the book, but, you know, I'm deeply aware that I speak about justice and yet I buy from retailers that do not practice justice. I speak of justice and yet I probably consume far more carbon than is my fair share in the world as a whole. I am part of systems that have no power to change but still benefit from. And I think that awareness has grown even stronger while writing the book and, and that sense of needing to bring it as part of a confession before God. But together with that, the more I have thought about justice, the more I have thought about the person as well. I have remembered people I worked with on um, that sense of compassion for the world and all its people you know, that that compassion that just makes you feel almost sick at times, you know. So I watch pictures of what's happening in Ukraine, and I, I weep. But equally, I also ask myself, so what's going on for people in Russia? What, you know, what has led them to that place? If I look at the Russian Orthodox Church and their stance, their official stance on the war, of course, there are plenty of Orthodox Christians who do not go with it. But, but then I want to ask, so what What has brought these people to this place? You know, they're a traumatised church in many ways. Uh, After years of communism and repression of Christians, how do we understand where they find themselves now? And therefore, how do we relate with both justice and compassion, being firm and gracious at the same time? And I think it's pushing me. Writing the book just reminded me and... and kind of shaped within me even more strongly that sense of how do I listen to these different stories? And how do we find a way of speaking stories of justice that doesn't fall into the kind of polarities we see so often? You know, it is so easy when you talk about justice about any kind of justice, to fall into being strident and having a go at other people whom you dehumanise, whom you cancel, and you silence, rather than thinking actually, how do we move towards justice together?
0: You've invited us to hear some of those stories from the Bible and elsewhere really powerfully. Isabel Hamley. thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology.
1: Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmer Hall, Durham. Cranmer Hall is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmerhall.com.